Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, with the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you at church. And uh, isn't it uh, great that the sun is shining after such a long time? Uh, if uh, I haven't met you before, my name is Huey. Uh, I'm uh, 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 one of the pastors uh, in the wider parish here. And uh, my uh, particular responsibility is... Uh, Church at 9, uh, here at 9 o'clock. So if you're joining us for the first time, uh, whether here or online, uh, great to be able to welcome you this morning. Uh, well, it'll be great if you can uh, have uh, your Bibles open uh, at chapter 27, verses 27 to 44. Um, I'm going to lead us in prayer that God will, God will help us to understand uh, this part of His Word this morning. And uh, so will you join with me uh, as I lead us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for your kindness to us in every way. Uh, Thank you that we have so much to be thankful for uh, as your people. Um, And thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you that you speak to us, you teach us. And uh, as we come uh, to this part of Matthew's Gospel uh, that uh, narrates for us uh, what is at the heart of uh, our faith, uh, that is the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would help us to approach uh, this passage with humble reverence, and uh, we ask that you would uh, please open up the eyes of our hearts so that we might see Jesus uh, more and more clearly this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, well, friends, uh, you may have uh, seen these pictures where it's possible to see two different ha- uh, images in the one picture. Uh, have 
you've seen uh, these pictures before. Uh, there are quite a few of them around, so you can kind of uh, go on Google and, and find any number of them. But uh, in this example, uh, if you have a look on the, the screen, uh, what do you see in this picture? Well, some of you uh, might be seeing an old lady smoking a cigarette. Hands up if you are seeing an old lady smoking a cigarette. Uh, it's about half of us. Uh, or others of you might be seeing a young lady with her head tilted away. Hands up if you're seeing a young lady with her head tilted away. Uh, it's the other half. You see, it's the same picture, but you'll either see one or the other. You can take down that picture now, Jared. Uh, now, uh, we've been working our way through the final chapters of uh, Matthew's Gospel uh, as Jesus is heading towards his death, haven't we? And uh, today we begin to look at, uh, as, as we've mentioned, what is really at the heart uh, of the Christian faith uh, as we head into the Easter weekend. Today we're going to be looking at uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, on Good Friday that's coming up, we're going to be looking at the death of Jesus. And on Easter Sunday, we're going to be looking at the empty tomb of Jesus. But friends, uh, this morning, as we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, I want to suggest that just like the picture that you saw earlier, there are two pictures of Jesus in this part of Matthew's Gospel. Two pictures of Jesus. And you will either see one picture or you will see another picture. But unlike the picture that I uh, just put up a few moments ago, the kind of picture that you see of Jesus at the cross is something that is far from trivial. Indeed, it's something that will determine your eternal future and my eternal future. And so who do you see Now, uh, if you turn to our passage this morning, I want you to notice that most of the people uh, at the crucifixion of Jesus are actually people who are not seeing Jesus very clearly. Or to put it another way, these are people who see Jesus not as God's anointed king, but as a fraud or as an imposter. And you can see this in the way they mock Jesus. And so, for example, have a look at the passage there uh, in verse 27. Uh, and you can see the Roman soldiers mocking Jesus there, can't you? In verse 27, they prepared for maximum humiliation by dragging Jesus, who, had, who hasn't even been putting up a fight up to this stage, but they drag him before a whole battalion of Roman soldiers, uh, a battalion back in those days apparently consisted of 600 soldiers. In verse 28, they stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him to mimic the purple robes that uh, actual kings wore. They put a crown of thorns on his head as a cruel imitation of the real crown that kings wore. They put a, a reed or a stick in his hand in the place of a scepter that kings usually held. And they mock him 
by kneeling before him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews! You can almost Im- uh, imagine them laughing as they say these words. But notice, friends, that this is not enough. For when they get tired of their mocking, the mockery turns to cruelty. In verse 30, they spit on him. They strike him on the head with with the stick or the reed. They do all this to a person who has just recently been whipped to within an inch of his life. And when they grow tired of the physical cruelty, they put his own clothes back on and lead him away like an animal to be put to death. And again, notice that even this is not enough. For when they drag Jesus to the place of crucifixion, notice that their mocking continues. In verse 34, you can see that they offer Jesus wine to drink, which is mixed with gall. Uh, now, some scholars suggest that the gall here is a, is a, is a form of anesthesia uh, that they gave to people who were about to be crucified uh, in order to numb them uh, of the pain that is to come. It's a bit like how in countries with capital punishment, they sometimes give people on death row um, a sedative before they execute them by firing squad. But I actually think that the goal here is not a sedative, but rather it's just another cruel joke that the Roman soldiers play. You know, they know that Jesus is thirsty after all the physical abuse he's been put through, and so they offer him a drink laced with gore, which they know is undrinkable. Which is why Jesus refuses to drink it. And so the great focus of this passage in Matthew's Gospel is the sheer mockery that is brought to Jesus. Indeed, it's very striking, isn't it, that we are not given much detail about the crucifixion itself here in this passage, isn't it? All we are told in verse 35, have a look with me at verse 35, are the very brief words, when they had crucified him, five words, when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among them by casting lots. Do you find that strange? I mean, the whole of Matthew's gospel has been building up to the crucifixion of Jesus as the main point. Uh, some people see the gospel accounts as, as really an account of the death and resurrection of Jesus with an extended introduction. This is the main point that everything has been building up towards. And yet, when we finally get to the crucifixion, we're not given any details. There are no details of the nails driven through his hands and his feet. There are no details of the slow and agonizing process of death by asphyxiation, which is how crucified people died. There are no details of the horrific torture of crucifixion. Movies like Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ might give all the gory details of what crucifixion was really like. But that doesn't seem to be what Matthew is interested in here. 
For even in verse 34, the focus doesn't seem to be on the physical suffering of Jesus, but the small casino that the Roman soldiers have set up at the foot of the cross as they gamble for his clothing. Now, why does Matthew give us this detail? Well, if you were listening carefully to the Old Testament passage uh, that was read today, you will have noticed that Psalm 22, which was written about a thousand years before uh, Jesus, speaks about soldiers casting lots for the clothing of God's king. As I know that Matthew mentions the casting of lots here so that he can show us that the death of Jesus is no accident, but it is all a part of God's detailed plan unfolding before them. But even more than that, I think the casting of lots for Jesus' clothing here is to actually show us the utter humiliation of Jesus before the watching crowds. But you see, if Jesus' clothes are at the foot of the cross being gambled away, then it means that his clothes are not on him. You know, popular images of the crucifixion often has Jesus on a cross in loincloths. But make no mistake, our Lord Jesus was completely naked on that cross, suffering the shame and humiliation of nakedness in a way that was designed to bring maximum humiliation. Uh, some of you might know the name Chuck Colson. Has anyone heard the name Chuck Colson before? Uh, Yvonne probably watches American Christian shows, <laughs> knows the name Chuck Colson. Um, Chuck Colson was a legal advisor to Richard Nixon and one of the key people behind the Watergate scandal that ended Nixon's presidency. Uh, for his crimes, Chuck Colson spent some time in a federal prison, but not before he gave his life to Christ and was genuinely converted. However, um, Colson uh, actually gave an interview where uh, he spoke of his first time when he walked into prison. And he tells the story of how when he walked in, uh, the guards gave each of the new prisoners the used underwear of other prisoners for them to wear. Uh, why did they do that? Well, it wasn't for economic reasons. Rather, it was to break the spirits of the prisoners. It was to humiliate them in the worst possible way. And that's what is going on here at the cross, isn't it? They want to humiliate him in the worst possible way. But here's the thing, friends. Did you notice in our passage this morning that it's not just the Roman soldiers who mock Jesus? Rather, it's everyone. In verse 39, it's the ordinary person passing by on the street. In verse 42, it's the religious leaders who have been scheming to put Jesus to death all along. In verse 44, it's even two of the, the robbers who are crucified on either side of Jesus. You might remember that in Luke's Gospel, one of these soldiers actually 
ends up repenting and being with Jesus in paradise. Do you remember that story? Well, Matthew, he's not interested in that here. What he's interested in is to show the, the mocking, the mockery that is going on. Why do they all mock Jesus? Well, they mock Jesus because they just don't see They don't see Jesus as God's king. They mock Jesus because they think, well, if Jesus really is God's king, then surely he wouldn't look so weak and pathetic and helpless. Surely he would look more impressive than what he actually does. Surely if God went to the trouble of sending his king into the world, he would be someone who is the opposite of what we are seeing. He's weak and powerless and pathetic to him. It's still like this, isn't it, friends? The reason why so many people in our world miss seeing Jesus as God's king is because they look for one who is far more impressive in the eyes of the world. In the language of the Apostle Paul, Jews seek signs and Greeks seek wisdom. In other words, if I am to believe that Jesus is God's king, then I want him to show me a powerful sign. If I am to believe, really, that he is God's king, I want him to powerfully solve all my life problems for me. Or I want him to give me some knockdown argument that convinces me that he is really the king. But all God gives is a cross. Something that looks weak, something that looks pathetic and powerless. What do you see when you look at the cross? Now, friends, uh, even though the characters in this account of the crucifixion are clearly not seeing Jesus for who he is, Matthew wants his readers to see Jesus clearly because that's what God wants you and I to see this morning. And the way he does it is by his use of irony in this passage. What is irony? Well, irony is when the reality is very different to what everyone is expecting. And so, for example, uh, did you know that the most stolen book in the world is what? What do you think is the most stolen book in the world? It's actually the Bible. (laughs) That's ironic, isn't it? For the reality is very different to what you would expect. It's ironic that people steal a book that actually tells you not to steal, isn't it? Now, I don't know whether you picked it up, but there's a whole lot of irony going on in our passage that Matthew wants us to notice. And so, for example, you see it in the Roman soldiers who mock Jesus by dressing him up like a king and bowing down to him as if it was all a bit of a joke. 
the irony, of course, is that Jesus really is God's king. And even as they mockingly bow before Jesus, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, well, they speak more truth than they actually realize. For this is the king whom not even death could hold down. And this is the king before whom each and every one of them and every one of us will one day stand before to give an account of our lives. How horrible it will be for those who mock Jesus on the last day when they stand before this one and they realize that he really was, he really is, God's king. And as he judges them, and as he determines their eternal future. Or, you see a great irony in verse 32, where the Roman soldiers find a man called Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross that Jesus was carrying. They do this presumably because Jesus is too exhausted at this stage to carry the heavy beam to the place of his death, which is suitably called Golgotha, or the place of the skull. But why is this ironic? Well, it's ironic because if you have been following along in Matthew's Gospel, uh, you would have expected another Simon to be carrying his cross, wouldn't you? You would have expected that great disciple of Jesus, Simon Peter, to be the one following behind Jesus carrying his cross. For if you remember, Simon Peter is the one who has boldly claimed that he would follow Jesus even if it meant his own death. But here, that Simon is nowhere to be found, and it is another Simon who is carrying his cross and following Jesus. In Christian ministry, it's often the case, isn't it, that the people you expect to sacrificially follow Jesus are often the ones who don't. And the ones you least expect are the ones that do. But perhaps the greatest irony of all comes towards the end of our passage in those mockers who taunt Jesus to come down off the cross and save himself. They mock Jesus because they don't believe that this pathetic figure in front of them is God's king who has the power to save anyone, let alone himself. I had a strange experience not too long ago. Um, I saw an NRMA van that had broken down by the side of the road. It's a strange experience because it's usually the NRMA band that you call if you are broken down by the side of the road, isn't it? It's the NRMA band that comes to save you if you need salvation. But here was this NRMA band and its driver looking broken and dejected and helpless and useless by the side of the road. And I remember as the van was being towed away, this mocking spirit building up inside me. That van isn't going to save anyone tonight. That's what's going on here, isn't it? 
they mock Jesus by telling him to come down from the cross because they don't actually believe that Jesus is powerful enough to save anyone, let alone himself. The great irony, of course, is that it is precisely by staying on the cross that Jesus is powerfully saving sinners. In fact, in verse 37, where they uh, you know, place a placard uh, over Jesus' head as he hangs on the cross, you see what it says on that placard. It says, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It speaks more truth than they realize. For do you remember what the name of Jesus means? Well, the name Jesus is just the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. In other words, it is precisely by staying on that cross that Jesus is not only revealed to those who have eyes to see as God's King, but the one is powerfully saving sinners by paying for their sins. The irony is that if Jesus did come down from the cross, there would be no salvation. If Jesus did come down from the cross, he would not powerfully have saved you or me. Brothers and sisters, do you see how wonderful Jesus really is? Matthew paints this picture of irony. Do you see him not as a weak and powerless and pathetic fraud, but as God's king who has come into the world to powerfully rescue you and me, sinners in need of salvation? But friends, uh, there is one more thing that I want you to see very clearly this morning. And that one more thing is the temptation that Jesus must have felt to not go through what he went through at the cross. I mean, how tempting it must have been for Jesus to retaliate in the face of mocking. We've all seen how easy it is to retaliate in the last few weeks, haven't we? Uh, We've all seen how easy it was for Will Smith to retaliate by slapping Chris Rock for mocking his wife. We ourselves also know how easy it is for us to retaliate whenever we are mocked or ridiculed or misunderstood by our friends or our spouses or our children. But here is Jesus, who is God's king, who we have already been told could call upon battalions of battalions of God's killer angels to destroy his enemies, facing the mockery of these puny, arrogant creatures, creatures that he has made as they spit on him and hit him and humiliate him. How tempting it would have been for Jesus to retaliate. Further, did you notice in the final part of our passage that there is a repeated phrase on the lips of Jesus. You see it? It's the phrase, if you are the Son of God, 
verse 40, the passers-by say, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In verse 42, uh, the chief priests and scribes and the elders of the people say effectively, If you are the King of Israel, then come down from the cross. And finally, in verse 44, even the two robbers who were crucified on either side of Jesus are said to revile Jesus in the same way. That is, they also are saying, if you are the Son of God, come down off the cross. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Where have we heard that before? If you are the Son of God. I know it's been a long time since we've started Matthew's Gospel. But do you remember we saw it in chapter 4, where Jesus is led into the wilderness and Satan comes to tempt him three times? And what does Satan say to Jesus in that chapter? Well, he says, firstly, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to turn into bread. Secondly, if you are the Son of God, then throw yourself off the top of the temple and ask God's angels to come and rescue you. And finally he says, If you are the Son son of God, then bow down and worship me, and I will give you the kingdoms of this world. In other words, if you really are the Son of God, then use your power for yourself. It's striking that the temptation Jesus faces from Satan at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel is the same as the temptation that he faces at the end of Matthew's Gospel. You can almost hear the sound of Satan in these mocking voices as they say, If you really are the Son of God, come down off the cross. If you really are the Son of God, then for goodness sake, use your power for yourself. Like all kings. But friends, that is not the king that Jesus is. You see. For Jesus is not the kind of king who will listen to the voice of Satan. Rather, he is the kind of king who will listen to the voice of his father and pray, Your will be done. Further, Jesus is not the kind of king who uses his power for himself. Rather, he is the kind of king who is kind. He is the kind of king who will use his power for the sake of others. He is the kind of king who will suffer the mockery and humiliation and brutality that evil people will throw at him in order to save sinful and evil people. I think reflecting on the temptation of Jesus lets us into the heart of Jesus who would go through the horror of the cross for mocking sinners. Even people like you and me who have mocked him metaphorically spit on him and rejected him in our lives. And so, my brothers and sisters, I want to finish by asking you the question that I asked at the beginning of this talk. 
And that is, who do you see at the cross? Do you see only weakness and powerlessness? A man who is useless? Do you see one who cannot be God's king? So that in actual fact, you don't, you're not prepared to give him any authority in your own life. Do you see one who is only worthy of mockery and humiliation and rejection? Or do you see what God wants you to see this morning? Do you see in Jesus at the cross the one who is God's king? Do you see in Jesus God's king who in his power endured the mockery and humiliation and brutality of sinful people in order to save sinful people? Do you see in Jesus not just their king, but your king, whom you will gladly submit to, whom you will gladly worship, and whom you will gladly serve? For if you see him in that way, then your life cannot be the same. For this king demands your soul, your life, your everything. And so, is this the way you see Jesus? Do you see him clearly this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, so much for your word to us this morning, and we thank you especially for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that even as he faced the mockery of the soldiers, he did not retaliate. We thank you that even as he faced evil men who taunted him to come down from the cross, he remained there. And we thank you that even as he faced temptation from Satan to use his power for himself, his heart was such that he used his power to save sinners like us, those who have rejected him in our lives. Now, Father, we pray that as we gaze upon the cross this morning, that you would give us eyes to see. And please help us to see Jesus not as a fraud, not as someone just to be taken lightly and ignored, but as our King who has come to save us from sin and judgment. Please help us to see in Jesus, uh, not one to be mocked, but the one who it is our joy to worship and serve and give our all to. For we pray this in Jesus' mighty name.